Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss sound practices and superlative resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Here to talk about one of those superlative resources and several of those sound practices is Andy Nacelli. Andy, how are you doing today, man? Great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So, Andy Nacelli is Associate Professor of New Testament and Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, where he's also an elder of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Andy, we're here today to talk about your new book, No Quick Fix, where higher life theology came from, what it is, and why it's harmful. So if it's okay with you for us to go just slightly out of order here, um, what is higher life theology? That's second question. Sure. Uh, higher life theology is essentially a, a view of the Christian life that divides it into two parts or two stages. And it encouraged those who are in stage one to advance to stage two. So some call it moving from being a carnal Christian to a spiritual Christian or not spirit-filled to spirit-filled. And there are different, lots of different ways to describe it. But the key for higher life theology is that there's a crisis that happens between moving from step one to step two. And that's called consecration or surrender in faith or more popularly let go and let God Okay, so in no quick fix, you say there are at least 10 reasons that HLT, if it's okay for me to use an acronym here, <laughs> at least 10 reasons higher life theology is harmful. Uh, and number five, I think, is, is maybe the, the most important for our audience and hopefully for uh, all Christians. It, it does not interpret and apply the Bible accurately. That's a pretty important assertion to make. And as a group of people really concerned with exegesis and biblical theology, I'd, I'd love to hear you flesh that out a, bit, a little bit. What are some of the uh, party lines? text for this, and we call it Keswick theology, right? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Right. It's named after a place in England, Keswick, and it's spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K, but the W is silent, so you're right. Right. So yeah, I wouldn't have even picked that up had I not uh, read that in the intro to the book, which is very well written, by the way, and we'll talk more about the book itself here in a minute. But what are some of those texts, and why would you say that it's not interpreting and applying the Bible accurately in regards to them? So... Uh, there, there's a, a view of the Greek aorist tense form that argues that it refers to point-in-time action. So that's that's a, an older view, but still some today hold on to that. And one of the most uh, critical texts that, that higher life theology cites here is Romans 6.13 and Romans 12.1. So uh, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, etc. So it's that verb, present. It's an imperative. Present your bodies. And I've been in many preaching services where the preacher will quote that and say, this is an aorist tense verb. You have to present yourselves once for all time at a specific point in your life. Have you done this? Christian, if you haven't done this, you need to do this. You need to dedicate yourself. And, and so that's how it, the, it, they make the appeal. And typically it's, you know, you come forward and have this time where you dedicate yourself and it's your once for all time presenting yourself to God. So the whole thing is built off of what I think is an exegetical fallacy of how the heiress tense form works. So that's, that's one example. So we're talking here about aspect versus time and, and uh, what you've already said is an exegetical fallacy. Uh, that's Romans 12, but I, I know that one particular passage is 1 Corinthians 2 through 3. How does that play out? How is that interpreted in Keswick theology? What are we missing? 
So First Corinthians, end of, end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, refers to Christians with the adjectives pneumatikos, which English translations typically render spiritual, and then sarkikos or sarkinos, which is fleshly or carnal. The King James thinks says carnal. So that's where people get the idea that there are two types of Christians. Some Christians are spiritual and some are carnal or fleshly. And I think that's misunderstanding what Paul's doing in that passage. So rather than saying that you have, like, every person in the world fits into one of three categories. So there's a non-Christian, and then there are two categories of Christians, carnal and spiritual. I think what Paul's saying is everyone fits in two categories. Either you're not a Christian or you're a Christian. You're unregenerate or regenerate, unbelieving or believing, unrepentant or repentant, unconverted or converted, natural or spiritual. I think those words natural, psychikos, and spiritual, pneumatikos, refer to whether you have the spirit or not. So the natural person, this is 2 Corinthians 2, around 14 and 15, the natural person doesn't have the spirit. The spiritual person does have the spirit. This gets confusing to English Bible readers because they see that word spiritual and they think it means what... Christian lingo uh, means when you say that guy's spiritual, you mean he's he's spiritually mature. But when Paul says a person is spiritual, he means they have the Spirit, capital S. They have the Holy Spirit. I think the the NIV nails this in their translation. They they translate psukikos, anthropos, the person without the Spirit, and then pneumatikos as the person with the Spirit. That's beautiful. That's exactly what I think that passage is saying. So then in chapter three, when Paul talks about a, a Christian who is behaving in a fleshly way, it's still, if they're a Christian, they still have the spirit, but he's saying, Hey, you're not living like who you are. You're, you have the spirit, but you're acting like the Greek word is host. You're acting as someone who doesn't have the spirit because people who have the spirit characteristically don't do that. They do this. I think that's how his argument works in that passage. Absolutely. So, I think maybe part of the rub is, and you mentioned this in, in the book, some of your examples of misinterpreting, misimplying the Bible, is that we seem to have this experience that there are some Christians we would say are mature, are spiritual. Uh, we have even maybe seen times where God just brought us along in maturity uh, in, a, in what seems like a profound way, and it, maybe we could misinterpret our experience there as being kind of an all-of-a-sudden second thing. You, you mentioned this kind of crisis in sanctification. What is actually happening, in your opinion, theologically in those moments? I think what's happening is a believer takes a large step of growth that's really memorable and so significant they can look back on it and this recognize that, wow, I, I really took a large step of growth there. And they can then misinterpret, well, that's where I moved from category one to category two when I went from carnal to spiritual. My favorite analogy for this is eating. If I asked you, Travis, what did you have for breakfast on November 1st, 2014? I just made that up. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think you could remember. Steak and eggs. You, Come on, Do you have the same Andy. thing every day? No, yeah. no, so, no. I, I don't think most people remember what they have for every meal or what they eat between meals. But most people can think back to some memorable meals. Like what did you have uh, for your special dinner after you got married or something like that. Uh, one of the most memorable meals for me is uh, I just finished my comprehensive exams at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and someone had given us a gift card to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. 
I knew nothing about it, but it was a $50 gift card. And I thought, hey, maybe we can go there twice. And you know, I got there and saw the menu. I went, whoa, I think we'll be ordering one entree and splitting it. Uh, but when I got the steak, I took a bite, and it's, these fireworks went off in my mouth. That was the best steak I had ever put in my mouth. It was so good. And I, I've never forgotten that. that I, that's a memorable meal. But I'm, that, that meal is not the sole reason I'm alive. That's not the decisive health-giving food I've put in my body. I, I've put food in my body just about every day in my life to nourish me. And all of that food has contributed in some way to sustaining me. It wasn't that one meal at Ruth's Chris that was decisive. Similarly, Christians, if they're benefiting from the means of grace, that all of those means of grace are helpful. But there might be a point in time where it's very memorable and significant, and they could misinterpret that as uh, within the framework of, of higher life theology. Amen. Now, this seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like one of the uh, significant inherent dangers in building a theology, not that it's not worth the danger, but that it's when we're trying to systematize anything, we're thinking in terms of category. Okay, an action happened, and now this category applies to me. I've become a Christian. Another action happens, and now this category applies to me. I'm a spiritual Christian. And sometimes at the expense of this ongoing work, this union with Christ that we've now received, the indwelling work of the Spirit, I just preach from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, where Paul has just told the Ephesians, you were sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. And then he's telling them, I'm praying that God may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And mm-hmm. just thinking about this interview coming up, having looked at the book and preparing myself to preach this passage, I said, you know, I understand why it's easy to read this in, and yet I also see how it can be incredibly unbiblical and unhelpful. And so I, I'm with you in this category. I don't know where all of our listeners are, but I think all of them would be really interested to hear a little bit more of your process. How did you approach this subject? I I was reading that this was originally a dissertation and then a slightly edited, uh, more academic kind of work, and now a shorter popular level book. What was it like approaching this topic? How did you decide to approach it? And what was it like then chiseling it down into this kind of format? So the title of the, the published book is just three words, no quick fix. Okay. And that is not what I actually proposed. I proposed a, a title more like what John Owen would have written. So my, my proposed title was Let It Go, and then I have a subtitle, Why Let Go and Let God is a Bad Idea. And then I have my John Owen sub-subtitle, or Why Higher Life Theology's Quick Fix to Your Struggle with Sin Will Not Result in a Higher Life, Deeper Life, Victorious Life, More Abundant Life, or Anything Other Than a Misguided, Frustrated, Disillusioned, and or Destroyed Life. But, uh, <laughs> but they didn't the go for title. that, huh? No, they, they wanted to go <laughs> short. So this goes back to my college years at the end of the 90s, where I was in a, a context in a church and school where higher life theology was the distinctive aspect of what they taught. It was the main application for most of the sermons. It just permeated everything about the, the institutions. And I initially, you know, I, I I want to honor my spiritual leaders and be a humble learner. So I was, I was trying to go along with the program and, and, and do these things. And that included, you know, when you, when you would tell your testimony or your God's story in your life of how he saved you. Typically people would, would share their stories by saying things like, 
God saved me from my sins when I was eight years old. And then I surrendered to Christ when I was 13 or something. They would present it in these two steps. So that's how I would present my own story. Similar. God saved me when I think I was eight or 12 and I surrendered when I was 13. And by saved, I meant that's when Jesus became my savior. I became a Christian. God converted me. And then by surrendered, I meant I dedicated my life to Jesus. I finally gave him full control as my master. I, I obeyed Romans 12.1. I presented my body as a living sacrifice. That, that's just how everyone talks. That's how I, I adopted that same framework. And the higher life theology promises that you're going to be victorious over your sin if you let go and let God. And, and I wasn't experiencing that. I was becoming, initially, I was frustrated and then disillusioned. And the more and more I read my Bible, I just became suspicious. Like, this doesn't seem to fit with how the Bible talks about how we uh, should approach the Christian life. So uh, I appealed to some friends who were not part of that context. One of them was a former pastor, and especially that pastor, his name's Mike Harding. He helped guide me safely through that storm, recommending books, articles, sermons, syllabi from his seminary, and I just devoured all of it. And by the time I was a senior in college, I had... I did not hold higher life theology at all, and uh, I almost got expelled over it. That's another story. <laughs> anyway, so by the time I went to seminary, I, when I got to choose topics for writing papers for classes, I would often choose topics related to higher life theology. I did that over and over and over and over. And when it came time to write a PhD dissertation, I figured, you know, I should, I should just address this head on. So uh, my first PhD dissertation is analyzing. Keswick theology, and my thesis is that it's it's unbiblical, it's inaccurate, it's erroneous. So that's that's kind of a technical book. Uh, I, I ended up publishing it as a as a more technical book. And for for the last you know, ten years or so, people keep asking, well, when's it going to be available in print, and, and especially in a, in a version that's a little more accessible. So I figured it was time to to kind of squeeze the orange and get just the best juice out and make it as accessible and readable as possible. And that's where this book, No Quick Fix, came from. So, Andy, you had the luxury of being able to approach one particular doctrine that you had significant experience with um, and in some ways started grappling with in your undergraduate uh, made it a significant part of your master's work in your entire dissertation. Uh, obviously, not all of our listeners are, are going to have that ability because many of them are already past those stages. But how would you then suggest they approach and evaluate a doctrine from a biblical theology all the way to a systematic theology standpoint? Well, I think even before you, you jump into the systematic theology, you have to do historical theology. So... Maybe I should define my, my terms by, by oh, there, there, I think there are five theological disciplines. So there's exegesis, biblical theology, systematic theology, and practical theology. So when we talk about uh, going from exegesis to theology, we're talking about doing all of those well. And if you're going to evaluate a historical teaching, like Kazakh theology or whatever else, your first step really should be to understand what they are teaching. And you need to be able to present what they teach in a way that the, the people who hold those beliefs would say, yeah, that's, that's what we believe. You, you even said it better than we could. That's the goal is to present 
as clearly and accurately as possible the view you're trying to analyze. You've got to understand before you analyze. So that's why I spend a, a good deal of time just telling the story of higher life theology and explaining what it is in their own words before I ever even begin critiquing. Now, once you start critiquing, I think this is getting more what you asked, uh, you, you want to look at texts, specific texts, and, and draw out the meanings of those texts to read carefully, doing exegesis. The biblical theology is trying to see how the whole Bible integrates and climaxes in, in Jesus. Uh, some, some issues you look at that might not be as critical. I don't think it's as critical for analyzing higher life theology. And, and then the systematic theology, that's what you referred to, that's when you answer, what does the whole Bible teach about a subject? And in this case, we want to say, what does the whole Bible teach about living the Christian life? And that takes a lot of, a lot of brain power of just thinking through all the text, putting it all together logically, coherently. How does it all fit together? And presenting it uh, as, as concisely and clearly as you can. That's a lot of work. That's why we have people whose lives are... They just give their lives to doing this, systematic theology. They're, they're theologians. That's their vocation. We're all theologians in, in one sense. And then practical theology is, is applying that to how we live. So you ask, how, how do you go about that for, for any kind of topic? It depends on the topic. For some topics, you're going to do more historical theology than for others, for example. Sometimes biblical theology might be more decisive than for other topics, as in this case, I don't think it was as critical. No, I appreciate that. And I've really appreciated that you include all of those elements in some form or another in No Quick Fix. You even began uh, your part two, Why Higher Life Theology is Harmful, with five commendable characteristics of this doctrine, which I think really underscores what you're saying about truly understanding where a doctrine is coming from. Uh, You know, number four, it affirms fundamental orthodoxy. This is not um, a matter of... uh, of being in the faith or not in the faith, but it is an important matter, important enough for you to analyze it so thoroughly and important enough for you to condense it in a way that it's actually going to be readable for the vast majority of believers, which I think is uh, actually probably, I don't know if you'd affirm this or not, but maybe a little bit more difficult um, than the other elements is really condensing something that you've learned so much about um, and within all of your uh, all of your points here about why why you think Keswick theology is harmful, you're including within that um, every element. This affects discipleship. This affects sanctifi- sanctification. We've already mentioned that you th- it's it's a misapplication of the Bible, a misinterpretation of the Bible uh, via those various exegetical fallacies. And so. I really see you doing this in the book and practicing what you preach, and I hope um, that that is something, an additional takeaway for our listeners, uh, that every single practical theology book, every single book analyzing uh, discipleship, sanctification, missiology, uh, has behind it an entire lengthy conversation and hopefully lots and lots of hard work, uh, which we see here. So... I would just ask as a, as a slightly separate question, uh, you obviously came into your PhD work with something particular in mind. If it wasn't clear at the moment, it's at least clear in hindsight that this was something you wanted to pursue and analyze. What advice would you give PhD students on choosing a dissertation topic? Well, when you're, there, there are different ways to approach writing a dissertation and there, there's basically a deductive approach where 
you have a thesis that you're trying to prove and there's an inductive approach where there's a problem you're trying to to just see where the evidence goes and when you start off you don't know where it's going to take you so for, I wrote another PhD dissertation on the use of Isaiah and Job in a passage in Romans 11. And when I started off, I didn't actually know what I was going to conclude. And by the time I got to the end of writing it, I, I reached a conclusion that I did not anticipate uh, reaching. Hmm. It, was, it was exciting. It was thrilling. So for the, for the book on higher life theology, I had studied enough ahead of time to know what my thesis was and how I wanted to, to proceed deductively. So I guess you just... You need to know your field well enough. So if you're writing in New Testament or ST or whatever, that you, you know the, the the general field enough to to penetrate in one area that, that where there's there more there's more work that could be done. I think uh, I'm speaking to, to fellow Christians. I think that that it's you you want to have the heart of a pastor. You don't have to be a pastor, but you want to write something that's going to be edifying to the church in some way. Uh, what motive? What motivated me to to write on higher life theology was not I want a dissertation, I want a PhD, I need to get it done, so I'll do that. Not at all. It was I have a rock bed conviction that bad theology hurts people, and that good theology edifies people. And I was seeing all around me bad theology hurting people in this particular area, and it grieved me. And I wanted to help people, and this was my attempt to help build up the church by protecting them from theology that would harm them. So that that kind of motivation can drive you in a certain area, that's huge. Also what's huge is that you're interested enough that that you'll be a self-starter on that topic for however long it takes you to finish. Usually it's one, two, three years to write a dissertation with with focus. And if if it's a boring topic to you, you probably won't finish. Again, I could say more, but there you go. Well, and I would assume those two things uh, go hand in hand, that if you do have a, a pastoral heart, um, and you see this as a deeply important thing for believers to understand and to have a better understanding of, then you're hopefully going to have the fuel you need to go pursue that and hopefully have the interests you need to really uh, press into it deeply for years. Hmm. Andy, you mentioned that you used to tell your story a particular way as if it was, okay, now God saved me and then I surrendered in this two-stage sort of a thing. How do you tell your story now? What, what would you describe your testimony as now? I was dead in my trespasses and sins and God made me alive. I think he did it when I was eight. It might have been when I was 12. I, it doesn't really matter because I don't need a, to have a a birth certificate that says the date I was born, I'm breathing. I know I'm alive. I, I'm not questioning whether I'm alive right now. God God made me alive, and I know that. I'm just not sure exactly when that was, and I'm, I, it doesn't cause me to doubt whether I'm a Christian now. And since he has made me alive, he has continued to help me grow, to sustain me, to help me see him as beautiful and all-sufficient and glorious and all-satisfying and the ultimate treasure, and that. He's become more and more glorious day by day, week by week, year by year. And I think he helps me grow when I, I benefit from the means of grace he's ordained for me, like meeting with our church, reading the Bible prayerfully, responding in prayer, meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ, like I did in my home last night with four couples for a few hours uh, to to evangelize, to there, there, there's so many ways to benefit from from God's goodness, and 
all of them are important. So a book on spiritual disciplines like by David Mathis are, are, are so helpful. And when I look back on my life, I just see one, one upward hill where, that I've climbed up. There have been some times where I've gone down a little bit, but the overall progress is up. It's maturity. It's growing by grace in Christ. And there's no second decisive experience in which I moved from being carnal to spiritual. It's been one lifelong period where God's grown me. And you're analyzing, looking back retrospectively on your own Christian life through the lens of what you know Scripture says, which is that mark of humility that says, I can't even analyze what has happened to me as well as the Bible can tell me what has happened to me. That's right. And I, I, I just find that to be uh, incredibly encouraging on my end of things. You know, I would probably have a similar story. I'd say, you know, it was about seven. I knew that I deserved this kind of punishment and that I cried out in faith for salvation. I was about 12 when I realized, man, my sin in the here and now is something that um, I absolutely cannot overcome on my own. I was probably 20 when I said, wow, no prayer I prayed or baptism I was baptized with uh, could, could ever Uh, obligate God's love for me. He has to have done it by his grace alone. And I could easily posit a three-stage salvation if I was just looking through the lens of what experiences were impressed upon me heavier than others. But if I'm looking through the lens of the Bible, I'm going to see what you're seeing here, that there are just two categories of people, unregenerate and regenerate, unsaved and saved. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as we, and, and now we're kind of talking this exegesis to practical theology uh, and maybe the most practical theology um, and how desperately we need those to inform one another in a very particular order, the former and then the latter. Um, and I, it's obvious to hear your pastoral heart in this. And I would ask you, what would you say to a member of your church? I know you're an elder there at Bethlehem who, who came to you and said, you know, i thought I was saved at this time, but now I think that I'm really saved and I'd like to be, uh, for instance, rebaptized. How would you encourage them? How would you counsel them in that situation? Yeah, that happened this last Sunday. I was interviewing someone for church membership and listening to their story, and they mentioned that they think they became a Christian when they were young, single digits, like five, six, or seven, and that there's a period in college where they they seem to reject the faith or at least reject the church and off into drugs, et cetera. And then later got serious again. And they, they were baptized earlier in life, prior to college. So I, as an elder, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, if, if, if you were baptized prior to God regenerating you, that wasn't baptism. That was getting wet. And uh, as they told their story, they thought, you know, they, they really were a Christian when they were younger, and then they, they, they backslid or fell away for a time. But they, when they were falling away, they didn't enjoy it. They hated their sin. They felt miserable. They, they knew God was convicting them and encouraging them to come back. And that uh, they, they felt like, you know, this wasn't God saving me later in life. It was me being disobedient and coming back. So I take it on a case-by-case basis. If someone really believes they were not regenerate and then they were baptized— my instinct is to say that probably wasn't a valid baptism. But again, I want to say case by case. I don't want to. I want to involve the other elders and talk about this and uh, and make sure it's not like one guy's sense and that's therefore what we all do. But this is a group decision. 
Absolutely. And again, I, I realize some of your listeners might be a little different polity, so I, I hold a Baptist ecclesiology. So we may differ a little bit on some That's of the details. That's all right. Our, our yeah. Methodist friends and all of our other Pado Baptist friends now uh, will write in and let us know where we've erred. But hopefully, hopefully, we all share this conviction that we want to do good exegesis. We want to interpret and encourage. If we're pastors, we want to in, encourage our our congregants to interpret their experiences through the light of what God has revealed in the scripture. And I, I think we can all agree on that, especially in the case of something like tragedy, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Maybe, so leave, leave polity out of it for a second. Uh, leave, leave sacraments and, and baptism out of it for a second. But when tragedy strikes and someone's heart is to say, my experience tells me God has abandoned me. Hmm. Well, our job in that moment, all of us agree, is to encourage them. This is what the scriptures say about where God is in trials, what God is doing in trials. And we all want to raise our sight uh, to heavenly standards and not just what appearances may suggest. And I hope that this is an encouragement to them. And I hope that our listeners will go pick up No Quick Fix, available from Lexham Press, and use this as a case study of putting Massive amounts of time and thought in a PhD dissertation into evaluating historically, exegetically, uh, a particular doctrine and really clarifying it in a practical way for listeners. And I hope that they're edified by doing it and that they'll be able to better edify those in their care, whether that's a church or students or a family or what have you. Andy, I'm so glad you've been on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Travis. Mm-hmm. 